Today's episode is brought to you by Five Line Designs. Bring your brand to light with Five Line at fivelinedesigns.com. Here at Five Line, we like to ask, what can we do for you? We're here to help you and your business grow from all angles. Whether it's building the voice of your brand, redesigning your assets, or building out a website, Five Line is here to help you step your game up and beat out the competition. No matter what stage you're in, whether you're just starting or you've been up and running for many years, make your next move your best move by working with Five Line. You won't regret it. Schedule a meeting to see what we can do for you today at fivelinedesigns.com. Welcome to the Business Grind, where we give you an inside perspective on what it takes to start, build, and run a successful business. Here are your hosts, Danny Shaw and Sean Michael Wellington. All right. Hello, everyone in podcast land today. Thanks for joining us, Sean. How are you feeling? Feeling great today and happy to have a legend on the show today. Uh, someone with a household name, an entrepreneur who we can all learn from. And yes, indeed. So uh, to our audience today, we have uh, Lisa Price, uh, founder of Carol's Daughter, um, pioneer in the natural hair care, care industry. Technically, you are Carol's daughter, too. Thank you for joining us. Uh, so I guess we can just kind of start and lead off into that. You how 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 do you describe yourself outside of being the founder of Carol's daughter nowadays um well that that is a a big part of my life being the founder of uh my brand and uh being Carol's daughter as well um my mom was a pretty amazing person uh, my dad also but you know I, I like the way the that Carol's daughter sounded. I had Robert's daughter on the list at the time, but it just didn't didn't give me goosebumps like Carol's daughter did. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad didn't care. He he just the, the thing that made him the most happy was bragging about his kids. Mm-hmm. And Ranger only needed five seconds with my father for him to say, "Have you heard Carol's daughter?" Do you know that company? Well, that's my child, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I also liked very much being Gordon's wife and mother to Forrest, Ennis, and Becca, Uh, you know, friend to many, many people. And uh, these days, I'm auntie to a lot of people on social media, which I don't don't mind. It doesn't make me feel old. I am old. It's okay. Uh, you said something I want to kind of um, touch on a little bit. You mentioned goosebumps, and I feel like with a lot of entrepreneurs, like goosebumps and instincts are something they always bring to the table. So you felt the goosebumps when you named it Carol's daughter. Any other times as you were building the business, you felt goosebumps with decisions you made? Oh, absolutely. And the thing, the thing that's interesting about that is the first few times that you do that, you know, when you have that feeling and then you go with it, you don't necessarily remember that that's what that was for me it was when i didn't listen to that and things went left Mm. that it was like wait 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 wait. i had the goosebumps and i had the the intuition but then i let somebody talk me out of it or i let data have me go in a different direction so when you don't trust your gut you really really remember that time Wow, very well said. Can you give us a specifics? What was that situation where you second-guessed your decision or you wish you made a, decision, a different decision? Oh, well, unfortunately, there there were several times because I, I just think that it, it's something that occurs in business. But for, for me, what would happen is my background was in television and film production. It being an executive assistant, I didn't have a background in the beauty industry. So it wasn't like, I worked at a beauty company or I worked for a beauty brand and sold beauty products. I had no experience in it at all. So when you start to build a team because you're trying to make more strategic decisions and you're trying to grow your brand, you start learning about marketing and you learn about product development and compatibility and different types of plastic and the benefits of glass over plastic and plastic over glass and all these things that Mm -hmm. you never had to know before. So you also end up working with people that do it for a living. Mm -hmm. Maybe they know something that I don't. Mm -hmm. And you go with, I'm going to trust the experts. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And for me, 
there were times when my gut was saying, that's not the right decision, but I trusted the experts. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was a marketing message. Maybe it was packaging. Maybe it was a logo design. I mean, thankfully, it was nothing that destroyed the brand because I'm still here. Mm -hmm. So they were decisions that I could live through and learn from. I know we didn't really talk about the beginning because usually it's, it's well documented at this point, but just for the audience out here who, you know, may not be aware, could you just speak a little bit about the process, you know, starting in the kitchen, you know, selling it at, at the low, at the church, your mom recommended and the flea market and the transition from there to where it's at today. Sure. Yeah. Um, 1993, May of 93, um, I had been doing this thing of making body products in my kitchen as a hobby for maybe about two years. And I would give gifts to family and friends. And my mother said, there's a church flea market at St. Mary's in two weeks. You should sell the body butters that you make because they're really good. And I remember saying to her, really? Do you think people would, would buy them? They'll, they'll give me money for them? She was like, yeah, they're really good. They smell good. They feel good. So I did that church flea market and I sold out of the body butters that I brought with me. And while I was there, someone gave me a flyer for a craft fair coming up in the neighborhood. And I did that craft fair two weeks later. And then I did another event and another event. And I spent the summer of 93 selling at different craft fairs and expos and things in New York, in Brooklyn mainly. And when the weather started to get cold and I went back to television production, people were calling to get refills of the things they purchased from me during the summer. And I was like, well, I, I'm not doing any more outdoor things, but do you want to come to my apartment? Maybe you could come by Thursday evening. And that started people shopping in my apartment which was interesting um, and went on for many, many years. <laughs> and it's surprising to me every time I remember it because I just wouldn't do that today. <laughs> uh, but I sold out of my home for a long time. Mm -hmm. And my husband and I moved a few times until we ended up here in Bed-Stuy. We've been in this house for 24 years. So uh, there are a handful of people that have memories of coming to my apartment to shop, but most people remember coming here to this house in mm -hmm. Bed-Stuy. And I, I sold out of my home for six years. I didn't open up my first store until 1999. How much is the identity of the brand associated with Brooklyn? Like, say you lived in the Bronx, would it, you know, would that have changed the identity of Carol's daughter? You think? Oh, absolutely. I, I am Brooklyn through and through. <laughs> uh, the block where I live today. I live in the house that used to belong to my aunt and uncle. Um, so they bought this house when I was 14. So I've been associated with this house since then. Next door at 280, um, my grandmother and my Aunt Ruby lived there. My Aunt Joan got married there. Uh, my mother had her wedding reception there, right next door. When I was born, my parents lived down the block at 270. And uh, I came home from the hospital to this block. So I've been associated with this block my whole life. I did live in Manhattan for four years, but the rest of the time I have always lived in Brooklyn. And it, it I mean, I know I live here, but it is my favorite borough. <laughs> Everybody from Brooklyn. That's, that's the Brooklyn energy right there. What was the, I guess, the mental transition, if there was any, saying, okay, now I need to take this a little bit more serious from the hobby to the business and start maybe, I don't know, you know, treating it different, if that's the right word, or just looking at it in a different perspective instead of the hobby that makes me some money? The, the first um, thing that happened was um, I, I had been selling and making different things and experimenting um, in my apartment, and I had an area um, off the side of my bedroom where there was a desk, um, and this desk ended up with boxes underneath it of herbs and you know different ingredients and things I was experimenting with and some of those things started to spread out into the bedroom area from that desk area and I remember this particular day I was trying to organize and not have things be so crazy but in my mind I was saying well this is my hobby this is my hobby you know like I'm not crocheting I'm doing this 
Um, and that same day I was listening to, cause I wasn't really watching it. It was like the noise in the background. I was listening to an episode of the Oprah Winfrey show and Oprah had people on her show that had started businesses and they were talking about knowing uh, the keys to whether or not you have a successful business idea, like what are the things that you look out for? And one of the guests had this checklist. And I remember that as I was listening to her, I was answering yes to the checklist. Mm -hmm. And one of the guests told a, a story about how um, you can't do something as a business unless you're passionate about it because it takes you so long to make money that if you only do it to earn money, you'll, you'll fail because mm -hmm. that won't be enough of a driver to push you through all the things that you need to do. So you really have to be passionate about it. And I realized that I was very passionate about what I was doing. And the, the example that she gave, like Oprah had said something like, well, how do you, how do you know that you're passionate about it? And then she says, well, you know, I don't know. For me, it would be if somebody woke me up out of my sleep and said, come on, let's go do this thing. Would I get up out of my bed and go and do it? And that really struck me because I love to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we all do, don't we? <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm really good at it. <laughs> if, if they gave out degrees in sleep, I'd, I'd have one. Um, but I knew that I would get up out of my bed and go into the kitchen and melt cocoa butter on the stove and play with oils and, you know, toss rose petals into a bowl and mix in some lavender. Like I, I would absolutely do it in a heartbeat. And that's when I realized I'm passionate about this. And because of all the things that I had said yes to, as I was listening to the checklist, I remember sitting in my bedroom and saying, well, maybe this isn't a hobby. Maybe this could actually be a business. Maybe one day I won't work in television and film production, and this would like be my job and how I contribute to the household. Maybe it could it could make a salary, like you know. Mm -hmm. And it it was that first shift that started things in motion because I chose to look at it in a different light, mm -hmm. and it, it's almost like me accepting that allowed for it to step into my life and be what it needed to be. It wasn't overnight. It wasn't automatic. It wasn't like all of a sudden I turned into this big brand, but things just, it, it was like I stepped into the, my purpose. I allowed what was happening to really happen. Mm -hmm. It sounds like also, you know, you watching that show it, that Oprah episode and it was, uh, you know, reaffirming, but then you also mentioned being on Oprah was also another milestone. You apparent for the business as well. So Oprah is having a lot of um, connections to this, uh, to the growth of the brand and the business. Yeah, that's my fairy godmother. <laughs> what kind of impact did that getting on her favorites list, uh, like, like really, did kind of impact did it make on your business? Like, did you see a spike in impressions or something, or a spike in sales? I was not on the favorites list. That's that's something that has not um, occurred with me as of yet. Um, oh. But I think that it was a good thing that it wasn't that. Mm. Because the way that I ended up on her show was um, she was working on a show with cottage industries, people that had started home-based businesses, but their home-based businesses were over a million dollars in sales annually. And a woman who had worked with me before on The View was actually interviewing for a position at the Oprah Winfrey Show as an associate producer. And she was at lunch with other producers and they were talking about what they were working on. And she, she was the one who said, well, have you spoken to Lisa Price? And they were like, who's Lisa Price? And she told them who I was and what my company was. And that's how they ended up calling me. And, um, I think being a black woman had something to do with me getting on that show because I was the only black woman of the women that were featured. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I didn't realize uh, how rare it was for 
an African-American female-owned business to reach the milestone of over a million dollars in sales Mm -hmm. because I didn't know statistics and, and things like that at that time. But that was how I got onto her show. So being on a show that was a bit more focused on all of these women and what they were doing versus a single product that she was endorsing um, enabled us to handle the traffic that came from that show. I think if she had said, you see this jar? I love this stuff and I use it every day and it's my favorite thing. We probably would have gotten too many orders that we wouldn't have been able to handle given who we were at the time and the size and everything. Um, But having her highlight the company, which then opened up people's interest in, well, what does this woman make? And people came to my website, they just shopped across the brand. Mm -hmm. And um, it also helped me get into People Magazine. And it also helped me get a book deal. And so it had a a long-term sustaining effect in kind of like putting me on the map Mm -hmm. versus blowing me up. Okay. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you were able to spread the love across your whole brand versus just one item coming off the shelves and you trying to keep up with the orders. I remember she had um, highlighted a product by Dr. Hauschka, which is like this really um, holistic brand that's based in Germany and they do a lot of things with roses. And based on something that she said she liked, it wiped out the entire crop of roses and Mm -hmm. the item was on back order until the roses grew again the following year. Oh, wow. (laughs) So you avoided a potential uh, lack of inventory. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Luckily, I wasn't reliant on a garden, but uh, yeah, yeah. Her, Her word is pretty powerful. I didn't understand that the reason that I may have been the only black person on that panel was because there are just so few of us out there at that time. Mm-hmm. That That's a bigger number today. Um, I think African-American women-owned businesses are the largest growing entrepreneurial businesses, period. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that time, that wasn't the case. If it wasn't for beauty, if, if that was in another industry, that would be just taught all day, every day. You know, like this is the classic built in the garage. It's very similar to an Apple or these other stories of how it was start, started in someone's house. Could you kind of just speak to that transition of, you know, just these different partners and, and investments and how that went, especially, you know, with the recent sale a few years ago to uh, L'Oreal and just how these relationships help? It just takes me so many different places think, thinking about answering this question. Um, when I started the, the business, again, I'm not a business person. I worked in television and film production. I started doing this thing as a hobby. It started to grow. And um, I started in 1993. In 1996, I was about to have my first child. And I was trying to figure out, um, can I go back to work after maternity leave and still do the things that I'm doing with the business. Like, does all of this make sense? And at the time I was working Monday to Thursday and my hours were pretty regular, which is not normal in TV, but I had gotten a job on um, like an at-home kind of show that had, you know, a a normal schedule. It was like nine to six, Monday to Thursday. Mm -hmm. And I realized that if I did do that, I would basically just pay my paycheck to a babysitter because I would need to come home and work, but then I need to see my baby because I didn't see my baby all day and then trying to work and be a mom on the weekends. And it just, it didn't make sense. So I said, okay, now I have to give up the job, try the business thing while I'm learning how to be a mom. And So I didn't really have time or room to sort of think about the business plan and the five-year growth. And I just just said, let me just figure out how to keep growing this so that I can keep paying bills and how to take care of this baby. And um, I also needed the company to pay for itself because my husband's job was covering our 
expenses. So I needed to grow the business so that eventually it could help with the expenses, but I couldn't dip into household money to buy shea butter. That, that just, <laughs> the shea butter had to pay for itself. Um, so I did that for a long time. And then we had a period where we thought that it all might fall apart. My husband suddenly lost his job and all of a sudden, neither one of us are employed. We have one baby with another baby on the way and no medical insurance. Mm. What the hell? (laughs) And we made it through that. um, And, you know, he was able to get another job. And when I was pregnant with the second child, Essence Magazine did um, an article on me and it was going to be featured on a page called People to Know. And I was excited about it, but I wasn't like, oh, because I had been in Essence before and I would get, you know, a little bump in business, a little lift, but nothing too crazy. And, um, you know, so I didn't go into it with like expectations or anything. The day that I gave birth was the day that the magazine dropped in, in for subscriptions. People got their subscription that day. My husband comes to the hospital to visit me and the baby, and he's like, oh, by the way, Carol's daughter phone is like ringing a lot. <laughs> Turned out it was literally like ringing, and on the third ring, it would go to voicemail, and, mm. and then it would ring right after that. Mm. So when I came home, I just heard a ring in the background, like constantly. That's when I discovered the voicemail could get full because that had never happened before. Wow. We had to just every two hours. Our mailing list went from a few hundred people to 6,000 just based on this article. Um, so it was, it, it was challenging and, you know, you're trying to figure it out. But what I learned from it was sometimes you have to just do what you know how to do and keep doing it. And when you're on the path you're supposed to be on, doors will open and things will happen. Like sometimes there are things you can make happen. And then sometimes things just have to come in their time. Um, So I had to lean into that and and learn what, what that meant and what does that kind of growth look like. And I went through different phases like that within the business, you know, so you, every, it, Everybody that's working for me initially is a family member. It's my husband. It's my brother. It's my cousin. It, my uncle helped me out for a couple of hours. And then you get to a point where you know you need people. You know, like you need somebody to show up for work every day because it, the work's not going to stop. It's not going to give you a chance to sleep. Um, so you get to that point where you have to have employees. Um, and then eventually I got to a place where I was saying to myself, okay, I got myself on Oprah. I got myself a book deal. I've gotten to 2 million in sales annually. I don't think I can do anything else by myself. Mm -hmm. And I knew how fragile I was. I Mm -hmm. knew that I was like one disaster away from this is done. It's Mm -hmm. over because there's no cushion. There's no safety net. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I began to feel like, Maybe this is when you take on an investor. Maybe this is, and I didn't know what that looked like, what that process was, but I opened myself up to it and I began to um, have meetings with people that were interested in investing. And I didn't know that I was going to be interested in them, but I knew that this was something I didn't know. And the only way I'm going to learn is to go out and talk and have conversations. And what that did was let me know what I didn't want so that when the right person did show up, I knew that they were the right person Um, because the other conversations I had were pretty awful. Um, And then I met Steve Stout in 2003 and he was completely different from anybody that I I had met before. He was an entrepreneur. He understood what it meant to be an entrepreneur. And he also understood that I wasn't waiting for somebody to take me to the next level. Like people love to say that and it really doesn't mean anything. He knew that all of my problems could basically be solved with money. I, you know, I, I needed money to upgrade my website. I needed money to have better labels. I needed money to be more efficient at production. 
Um, and it wasn't that I wasn't ready. Um, it, it was just, there's no capital there. And Steve and I began to work together, even though we didn't have a legal partnership until 2004. Um, but I, I just knew that he was the, the right person to work with me. And he began to put together the celebrity team of investors that we had. And, you know, at the time, I remember thinking, like, this is crazy. Like, I can't believe I'm going to be in partnership with Will Smith and Jada, you know, Jay-Z, people like this. Um, Will and Jada were customers, and that was already, like, surreal enough. <laughs> but to have them as business partners was just bizarre. Um, but I now know that that was part of Steve's strategic way of thinking. You, you bring these people in. They have skin in the game within the company, but their voice gets you press mm -hmm. and their voice gets you attention mm -hmm. that would have been so much harder to get all by ourselves right. with, you know, such a small brand. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we grew the business that way. We were able to get retail distribution because of the press attention that we got from having celebrity investors. But then you have to really work on your product because you can't tell that celebrity story forever. Eventually, people have to start like talking about the product because mm -hmm. it's great that Jada invested in hair milk, but what about the hair milk? <laughs> um, and you know, so that was the, the the next phase of it. And as we began the retail expansion, then you could again see that there was need for more capital a different type of investment and at the end of 2007 which was quite fortuitous even though we didn't know it at the time pegasus capital advisors invested in carol's daughter um, and thankfully we closed that deal at the end of 2007 because then in 2008 we all fell into a recession and right, right. there wouldn't have been a deal like that on the table for Maybe five years. <laughs> I would like uh, to hear a little bit more about, you mentioned um, heading into retail distribution, and I feel like that's a huge milestone for any product um, company or, or product seller. So can you just tell us a little bit more about how that transition happened and kind of the steps you needed to take to be prepared for that? That transition happened because um, Steve knew that we needed to be in multiple places across the country, just being in New York wasn't going to be enough. We did have a website. Web business was very important. But at that time, people still didn't trust shopping online. So most people that shopped online were younger people that were trusting technology. Mm -hmm. You know, your, your aunt was not typing her number, her credit card <laughs> number into the computer. That just wasn't happening. Right. So you couldn't get the same scale online yet that you could get today. So he knew that people needed to experience and touch uh, the product. And given that Steve was um, an, an advertising person, a music person, a marketing person, very well connected, very successful, people took meetings with him. Mm. Um, so, you know, it wasn't that Carol's daughter was calling the president of Sephora to say, hey, I'd like to talk to you about something. It was Steve Stout, the guy who worked on this campaign and worked with this commercial and did, did a sneaker line with Jay-Z. It was that guy saying, I have something that I want to talk to the CEO of Sephora about. And so then the CEO of Sephora takes the meeting because, oh, yeah, I heard about this guy. He's interesting. Mm -hmm. And then this guy, Steve, comes in to talk about our brand. Um, and that's what what helped to make the difference. And then because at that time, initially, we thought that we were going to take the brand into mass, into places like Walmart, like drugstores. And no one wanted us there because mm -hmm. at that time, 89% of African-American women relaxed their hair. So what it, I'm not going to sell that. I, I sell the relaxer. It's like six, seven dollars a box. I sell those all day. And you want me to buy a pomade that's fifteen dollars? She's not going to buy a fifteen dollar pomade. I, I sell her two dollar pomades, and we're good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, this isn't for us. Mm -hmm. So that's how we ended up going the prestige route 
and looking for a different way to be in retail. And Sephora was the first ones to give us an order. And then after Sephora, Macy's followed. Now today, it's a whole other situation i didn't even think of you know pre uh good hair chris rock and how relaxers were the norm you know um and that totally affected your business model so it was just interesting note that i didn't even think of yeah Mm -hmm. that that movie i always say that that movie was part of the impetus for the natural hair movement i think a lot of people saw that can of soda disintegrate in the relaxer solution and said oh my god that's what i put on my head Mm -hmm. and and they made a change when, when we um, took on uh, equity partners with uh, Pegasus in 2007, the, the difference with an equity partner, um, which a lot of people, unless you're in business, you don't, uh, you don't understand it. An equity partner invests a lot of money in you with the idea that they're going to scale your business up and within three to five years, hopefully sell for way more than what they put in. Mm-hmm. You know, they're looking to double, triple, quadruple their investment. Um, and it's a way of you getting money that you just would not be able to get anyplace else. And and people think I sometimes that that means that someone writes me a personal check and I have all of this money that I could just do anything with and that that's not what it is the the money is put into the business the board makes decisions on where it goes when it goes how it goes and its goal is to build the business not to build anyone's personal wealth Mm -hmm. and once you build uh the company if you're successful and you can do that and build it to a place you need an exit so you're either going to go public and start to sell stock, or you're going to trade up and trade for a different equity partner. You know, maybe you brought an equity partner in at a lower level and they, they want to trade up and hand you over to somebody who's going to put in even more and scale you more, or you get acquired by a strategic partner. Mm-hmm. And in our case, we were acquired by a strategic partner. And a lot of times I think people think that you know, I had this this choice that I had to make. Am I going to stay independent or am I going to sell? And, oh, what decision do I make? And that, that was never the case. I always knew that I would have to sell at some point because when we took on those equity partners, unless suddenly I became wealthy, uh, you know, or won a lotto or something, I'm not going to have the kind of check to say, thanks for investing this money, but I, I'm, I'm going to buy you out now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always knew that an acquisition was in our future. I just wanted it to be the right acquisition. I wanted it to be someplace where I would feel comfortable, someplace that understood the brand, someplace that I knew, well, I can work there for a while, but if I walk away, these people get it. Um, and I also wanted it to be a place where I could bring my team and I was able to get all of that. You mentioned a lot of the like the qualitative things in that equity partner. But I'm curious, is there um, we had an investor, uh, excuse me, we had an entrepreneur on a couple of weeks ago who did a Shark Tank deal. And initially, Mr. Wonderful won 37 percent of his business. And he knew that was way too much um, that he didn't want to give away that much. So I'm curious in your head or in the mind of an entrepreneur, is there a, is there a magic number? Is there a cap? You know where no matter how much I want to grow this business, I am not giving away this much percentage or this much of the business or or is that number different for everybody? Maybe it really is different for everybody. Um and it's different depending on the business as well. Um, I think when you're taking on your first investor, your, your first level of investment, you want to be able to have control. So you don't want to sign away more than, the, you know, you want to have the 51% at a minimum because you want to be able to have control. You want to be able to have a voice. You want to have a on the board if you know there's a board that's that's formed um for your brand um but the you know 37 percent would be perfect for someone else and way too much for another person um 
So it, it really depends on the business, the amount of money that they're offering, what their money will bring. You know, sometimes money is good and sometimes money is bad. You want the money to be smart money. You want the money to be strategic. You don't want somebody who's coming into the beauty business, but they have a real estate background mm -hmm. and they have a lot of money and they bring the money in and then they want to open up like spas or stores because they know real estate, but your business was built uh, on Instagram and you have this, you know, following and so much of your business is done on the web. So is it smart to now go retail um, and spend all that money on real estate? And that person may want to do that because real estate's their background and they don't know beauty. So you have to make sure that the, the, the two, it's like, to me, you approach it like a marriage. Um, you have to understand what it is that you're building together, why you're coming together, what your end goal is, but then you work with your accountants and your lawyers to make sure that your prenup is all together so that when y'all decide you don't want to be together no more and you, you want to <laughs> leave him or her and walk away, you know what you're walking away with, you know how to exit, you, you know what that means. Mm -hmm. um, because it, it's very much like a marriage and your lawyers think of all of the things that you don't think of. They think of all of the things that your potential partner will do to you <laughs> that you don't think about. Because when you first meet, like in, in love and relationships, everything is beautiful. Um, and you don't think about the, the bad stuff. And so, yeah, lawyers and accountants are important in any deal you negotiate. Uh, leading up to the L'Oreal there was a lot of uh, backlash, you know, on social medias. And I remember, you know, the narrative around that. And I always feel like, you know, there's that sense of wanting to uh, maintain the sense that a, a business is, is black owned for, from an optics and a feel, you know, feels good. And But a lot of the consumers or the people that are criticizing aren't really aware of the business behind things and, and why certain deals was made and, and you waited to make sure the partner was right, uh, you know, with each partnership that you engaged with, as well as making sure that your staff was good, which it seems to be a common theme throughout all of your business deals. Uh, so, you know, the, the team being okay and having that connection to the staff and making sure it's the right partners. So uh, could you just speak a little bit to that? <laughs> when you say that uh, there was backlash back then, uh, yeah, there was backlash back then and there's still backlash today. Mm -hmm. um, because people, you know, people make the assumption that we're an African-American-owned brand and then someone, you know, on social media will decide to say, oh, you didn't know that she sold to L'Oreal and then I'm fraud that, you know, has been lying all this time. Mm -hmm. um, I, I understand the way that our community feels. That, that there's a lot that we have not been able to have. Um, when, when white people build businesses and sell them, everyone applauds that they sold their company and they did great. Um, when we build businesses and sell them, it's bad because it, the, the perception is we sold out, uh, we gave something to white people that they didn't deserve. Um, all we did was something for a check and, and we're, we're giving away the culture and I have not met an entrepreneur yet, an African-American entrepreneur that has sold a business that sold away our culture. Mm. I, I just, mm. I haven't met mm. them. Um, that is not what we're doing. And we, as African-Americans, have to think about how many years we have been enslaved and the fact that we're still not really free. Um, Chris Rock said it very well. Wealthy is something that you cannot get rid of. And rich, you can lose in a weekend in Vegas, a bad weekend in Vegas. You can lose rich. Wealth, you can't shake. We don't have wealth yet. And this is how we're going to build it. We're going to have to be uncomfortable with people building businesses and selling them because we have to build wealth. Mm -hmm. We can't expect people like Oprah Winfrey and Beyonce to fund and purchase every 
black started brand out there that it's just it's not going to happen like i remember somebody said why did she just sell to oprah to keep it black owned like oprah's busy with a media <laughs> company and a school she's not in the beauty business um you know and and even when we are black owned and we have our companies if you dig into the infrastructure of our companies for me for example the only black people that I was dealing with were my shea butter guys, my one guy from the Ivory Coast and my one guy from Senegal. I did not buy bottles and jars from a black bottle and jar company because I never found one. You know, I didn't buy essential oils from the black essential oil company because I never found one. I didn't have a label printer who was African-American. So we, we don't have the infrastructure yet to be only in partnership with ourselves. We're getting there and we can work towards it, hiring black florists, black photographers, content creators, etc. because you, you want to support, especially when you're a startup yourself, you wanna support as many businesses as you can. But it's going to take time for us to get to the place where we have the venture capital funds, where we have banks, where we have um, large companies that can invest in smaller companies. We'll get there, but we're just not there yet. And tearing each other down as we're trying to build mm -hmm. is just not helpful. It, it's not helpful. Yeah, they say most entrepreneurs sell their first business anyway. So it's even statistically, right, beyond the race, it makes sense as an entrepreneur for you to I know you don't, we don't like the world level up necessarily, but level up, right? Because that's how you expand and that's how the infrastructure grows. So, and, and honestly, we also don't have the right, you know, separate from everything else to come on what someone's personal decision ends up being when it comes to being able to take care of their families. You know, mm -hmm. when I, when mm -hmm. I sold um, and I didn't sell it by myself, it was a conglomerate of people involved. But when we sold the brand to L'Oreal, I had been in business for 22 years. So that's 22 years of sacrifice and 22 years of juggling and 22 years of making your own deliveries. There were, you know, 10 years of a business operating out of my home, lots and lots of travel for business, all of the sacrifices that your family goes through. And I also... You know, it's not like I started when I was 12. Mm -hmm. So by the time I sold the company, I was over 50. Um, you know, you you need security. You, you need to know that you're going to be taken care of in your old age and that your kids are going to be okay. Mm -hmm. um, and again, as a people, we don't have the wealth that our white counterparts have. I think it's $171,000 is the average net worth of a white person and we're at something like 17,000 like it's crazy the difference between what wealth we have things that that get passed down um, in in other families that don't get passed down in ours you know there there are entire suburbs in this country that were built in the 40s and 50s and 60s where we weren't allowed to own homes there and if a white person bought a home, when they signed their deed, they signed their deed saying that they would never sell to a black family. Mm -hmm. So we, we didn't get property handed down to us the same way. Mm -hmm. So th there's a lot of catching up that we have to do. and We got to give each other grace so we could get there. We're, we're, we'll get there, but, you know, let people make their coins so they can have some coins to reinvest <laughs> something. If you live in a neighborhood like I do in Bedford-Stuyvesant, we don't get the same public school somebody gets in Park Slope. So money that I should be saving to build for the future goes to tuition because I got to get my kids as best educated as possible so that they could go out into the world and do better than I do. But it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that because you live in Bed-Stuy, you have one kind of public school, but when you live in the Upper West Side, you got another kind of public school. It's all the New York City public school system. Why is it different? What, what type of conversations happens when you're building that type of business and you ha you're married and you have kids and, you know, all, all of that? I think what worked in uh, mine and Gordon's favor is that all of this started 
when we didn't have children yet. We were married, but we didn't have children yet. So we could um, figure things out together on how we do things. Mm -hmm. So by the time there were children, there was um, business that had been established. Mm -hmm. And Gordon used to go out with me when we would sell at like the African Street Festival or um, at Brooklyn Academy of Music during Dance Africa Weekend, we would be out there together. And what that did was I didn't have to explain to him what potentially could be mm. because he saw it, mm. because he was there with me and he experienced it and we earned the money together and he would see people come to our apartment to shop. So he knew that it was something real and he watched it grow from that first flea market to you know the, there was a the the international african arts festival that they have at commodore barry park mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. at the time it was at boys and girls high school at the field we would go out there for five days and in that five-day period earn anywhere from 10 to fifteen thousand dollars in sales that was something that he was actively a part of and and it happened because of work that both of us put in. Um, so then you end up having different conversations about money and business as it continues to grow when that person is actively involved and they know that you're not just throwing away money. Mm -hmm. um, but it still takes a, a toll on your relationship and your family, especially when I had to start traveling mm -hmm. and Part of the reason I started this was to be able to be at home with with my kids, but still have an income. Mm -hmm. um, and then I ended up being on the road, and he was the one at home, um, which is not fun. Uh, but I, I I think when when you start out with having respect for each other and um, having a partner who's a friend um, and understanding that the business is the business and then family is family makes a difference. Mm -hmm. it, it makes a big difference. And then, you know, you, you learn from people, you talk to people, you get advice from people. I remember being at um, a conference, the Odyssey conference, that is a, a big conference for African-American women. And there was a speaker at the conference who was reminding us that because the, the conference is made up of women who are um, C-suite people mm. or entrepreneurs, attorneys, doctors. Um, and so when we're at work, we're the boss. Mm -hmm. But when we go home, we're a partner. Mm. And, and technically, no one should be the boss when, mm. you, when you go home. And that's an, an interesting dynamic that at the time that he said it, I thought, well, of course, you're, you're, you're partners, of, co of course, you know. And then as the work began to grow and the business began to grow and the demands began to grow, I could see how easy it would be to come home and try to be the boss. Mm -hmm. Because when you do it at work, mm -hmm. It's very efficient. <laughs> so then you think, well, let me just come home and do that same shit here. <laughs> it don't work. <laughs> that might be the best piece of advice from the whole thing right here. I need to write that down. <laughs> I think we're at time. Uh, we definitely appreciate it. Uh, you know, you sharing your, your story, you know, your insights, just speaking through the whole journey. And before we go, just a quick question, like, what is next? So are we, are we... Are we taking it easy now? I know you're still working with, you know, Carol's daughter and with L'Oreal, but is, should we be on the lookout for anything else? Or right now you just... Um, no, you shouldn't be on the lookout for anything else. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't know how long I would stay with the brand because I'm just not a corporate person. Mm -hmm. um, but surprisingly, I have adjusted and I've learned that I don't have to be a corporate person just because I work in a corporation. I can still be who mm -hmm. I am. Mm -hmm. And and they're grateful for me being who I am. Um, and I, I've had some great executive coaching. Um, Shirley McAlpin, shout out to her. She's amazing. And um, it's, it's helped me. 
be me within this interesting environment that I'm in. Um, but I am looking to figure out what does my mentorship look like with me being able to more formally mentor people. Um, I do it on a very kind of hit and miss way. Um, and I'm trying to figure out how to do it in a, in a more purposeful way mm-hmm. um, so that it has a bigger impact because I see the importance and the, and the need for it. And I think my app, if you will, is one more of service mm-hmm. than commerce. Mm-hmm. Real quick, I know we got to go, but one bonus question that kind of came up as you were talking. I know you started in film and TV and um, the Madam C.J. Walker story, you know, um, how did you feel about that particular film if you did see it, first of all? Because I feel like, you know, she was definitely, you know, the, the Carol's daughter before Carol's daughter came around. So I'm curious what you thought of that particular film. I, I did see the film. I I am not as well versed on her actual story as I tr- as I should be. And I did um, read, you know, some of the, the liberties that were taken with telling the story. But mm-hmm. having a television film background, I understand how that happens because you want people to watch. So you have to make things interesting. Um, but I have to say it was it, it, it's hard to put into words to see someone in a film melt wax and oil hot and pour them into jars. When I saw the trailer, I couldn't speak. Mm -hmm. I I was just like struck Um, because it's, it's such a natural part of my life, but you realize in that moment, you have never seen it. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you see films where somebody, you know, builds a, a beauty company, but in a different way. Um, or someone's an attorney, or you know, you you see the the biopic of some someone that did something else. But I've never seen someone talk about oils and and you know massaging someone's scalp and melting things in a pot and you know being inside of her warehouse and looking at her workers. It was eerie, and and gave me chills. And because it's what I did, you know, and and. I got so many messages from people saying, oh, my God, I'm watching the Man of C.J. Walker movie. And the only person I could think of is you. <laughs> and like, oh, my God, I remember the kitchen. And, you know, I still have my glass jars. And it's like screenshots. Look at the jars. Those look like your jars. It, it was it was remarkable. It was really, really remarkable. Well, we definitely appreciate you sharing your story with us. Uh, today um, in our audience but definitely we will, we could be talking for another hour we're gonna we're cutting off now we're gonna give you your time <laughs> for the rest stop. of the day <laughs> honestly we could keep on going but uh, we like to thank you for your time and, and sharing your story with the audience if you have a question you would like us to answer in the show shoot us a message on any of our social media channels or shoot us an email at questions at businessgrindshow.com see you again soon in the meantime keep, keep grinding the business grind is for entertainment purposes Opinions expressed are those solely of the host and guests. Please consult with a professional and exercise discretion before engaging in any business endeavors. I'm out here on the grind. I'm out here on the grind.